because it happened early in the morning. I woke up to the news and I called Chloe and she didn't answer. And I remember just like the group chat going off, Twitter was going off. First thing I heard from Chloe was she just said we're gonna win. The Green Lantern has been lit over Auckland Central. Auckland Central's newest MP. I, in absolute bloody mindedness, hadn't entertained any idea that we might not win until that point in time. We fought for something and we might have just made it happen. <laughs> and this was in February and like 50 people showed up. Yeah. It was wild. So I want you to remember this moment when anybody tells you that it cannot be done. <laughs> this, this is what progressive politics looks like. Hello and welcome back to Blueprints, the podcast about political strategies from one of 200. We're trying to make the lessons of political organising easily available for those of you who are trying to make a better future. Very broadly speaking, there are two types of strategies for groups looking to influence society. Outside strategies, meaning building campaigns, unions or organisations outside of parliament or legislative bodies, and inside strategies, meaning trying to win representation within them. No matter how powerful or massive your political movement is, at some point, it'll probably need to get some of its people elected into government. The last two episodes have been about outside strategies, but for the next two, we're going to go inside and we're going to look at two super recent electoral campaigns. First up this week, we're looking at how Chloe Swarbrick and the Auckland Green Party won Auckland Central in New Zealand's 2020 general election. For our international listeners out there, Aotearoa New Zealand has a mixed member parliament. There are electorate MPs who are voted to represent a geographical area by a first-past-the-post, and then there are list MPs who are voted in by a proportional representation. So each voter gets two votes, one for their electorate and one for a party. For smaller parties then, contesting an electorate rarely leads to victory because building enough support concentrated into one geographical area to overcome the traditionally bigger parties is really difficult. Indeed, Swarbrick's win was only the second time in the Green Party's history that they'd won an electorate seat after basically no one thought she could do it. She started the campaign by running against the incumbent, centre-right Nikki Kay of the National Party and Labour's Helen White, who had only been a couple of thousand votes short of winning the seat in 2017. Swarbrick ended up winning by 1,068 votes and it came during the same election as Jacinda Ardern's Labour Party swept to the first outright majority since the MMP system was brought in in 1993. They ended up winning 65 of the 120 seats. We spoke with campaign manager Leroy Beckett, field organiser Nico Elson and Chloe herself about how they did it. I should just say that I was personally involved in this campaign, but first off though, campaign manager Leroy told us how he came to be involved. This campaign. Mm-hmm. in that we've both been kind of around green politics in Auckland for a few years and we'd helped on Chloe's 2017 
campaign and so when the 2020 election was coming around we had this team from 2017 right we've been planning an Auckland Central campaign for a long time just theoretically it's where we spend our time it's where we worked it's where there are a lot of young people it's was kind of natural for us to want to run a campaign in the place where we were we wanted a representative who was as cool as Chloe and then when it came time we were just kind of oh yeah we'll help out we'll do what we can I knew it would be a really big job handling campaign managing such a big campaign especially because we knew Chloe really wanted to fight for it and I think we were both yeah cautious about how much time and energy and resources we personally had to put into it I don't know what point it turned from oh yeah we're helping out to oh yeah this is (laughs) this is going to be what we focus the next nine months of our lives on yeah, I, I remember specifically thinking, oh, yeah, we've really, really got to do this. This is Nico. Throw in every weekend, every waking minute. But that probably wasn't in January. But I think at that, at, at a first meeting when we were talking about it, we, we were almost like, oh, no, no, we, we'll, sort of, we'll sort of be around and help a little bit. We were obviously involved last time, and we were involved in, you know, climate change campaigning before that, and so have sort of, you know, probably seven or eight years have... have known each other and known a bunch of the other people in the campaign team that that helps you just form that trust a little bit sort of more informally that you're a little bit more like oh yeah well if that person's doing it, that person's doing it well yeah I don't mind spending a bit of time and like just getting kind of stuck in so I think that the fact that we had such a positive campaign last time in 2017 even though it wasn't you know we weren't trying to really win we were just trying to participate mm. that created really good conditions for trust amongst us I think so that we were like yeah yeah why not do it again and do it a little bit more seriously this time and see how how much we can sort of build you know even more community really. As I said in the introduction basically no one thought the campaign would succeed and that included people inside the Green Party too and they first had to get permission nationally to run this two-tick campaign. Asking for a Green Party vote and asking for a Green candidate vote was unusual. There was one person who was convinced that they could win though and that was Chloe but I'll let her describe what the risks of running two ticks were. Some people saw that when you are arguing for a local vote, uh, that people might give their party vote to another political party. Um, and, you know, that the argument goes that the two large parties of Labour and National don't need to worry about that because, you know, people just vote one way. And I, I don't understand why we didn't apply that same kind of logic to ourselves. Instead, we constantly think that our voters are people who operate in that realm of complexity and that they'll party vote for us, but, you know, candidate vote for another. Uh, another identified element of risk is that we lost or reduced our party votes because of the perceived focus on an individual, on winning the electorate. And another perceived risk was that if we did go gung-ho for it and we lost, then it would be embarrassing. Um, And the latter one, I was more than happy to wear. I'm not sure how much the risk assessment or uh, feeling of risk came from that historical overhang of this is just the way that we've always done things how much of it came potentially from the potential to annoy Labour and that kind of relationship, particularly given that we'd just come from our first term in confidence and supply with them, having Green Party ministers for the first time in our history. So we were aware that that was the context that we were working within. These risks were genuinely quite high. Remember, the Greens hadn't won an electorate seat since the 1990s, and with Jacinda Ardern riding the bounce from her party's effective COVID response, Labour was probably going to dominate. But given that, another question, which is kind of obvious, 
but always worth asking. Why bother running for the seat? Why take on those risks? Like what could winning the seat do? Why would it be valuable? And what was its strategic importance? I also, I guess, come from the school of thought that um, we as the Greens uh, have for a long time just accepted almost prior to even engaging in the argument that we're always going to be Labour's kind of little and annoying progressive brother. I would far prefer that we, you know, really excavate those assumptions and and push further ahead. And holding an electorate um, to me as part of a theory of change is one way to increase our resources, but also to then start growing our power base to push for more progressive ideas. And if we're supposed to be a parliamentary force to be reckoned with, We can't continue toying with the idea that our future exists in oscillating between the 5% to kind of 10% margins of the party vote soul. And if we hold electorates and we show that what progressive green politics looks like in a local constituency and do electorate politics differently by constantly community building and problem solving, and I saw it as a really great opportunity not only to obviously seek to win the seat and then build kind of a community and communities and a power base from that, but also to showcase that the Greens were really serious. And this what it, this is what it means to have these kind of systematic overhaul level policies applied in a community, in a neighbourhood, and to have somebody who's, you know, a fierce advocate and bringing communities together, what I would argue is um, an ever more genuine version of local representation, not just focused on, you know, sending out letters talking about how great they are or, you know, their kind of leader or whatever. So they knew why they were running, and plenty of people have told them it was risky. So what made them think they could do it? Let's look at some of the objective conditions. As we've heard, The core team of the campaign were quite experienced. They were involved in Chloe's 2017 campaign in Mongekeke, and many of them were part of the Auckland Central Greens branch. Some of them had even known each other as far back as the early 2010s in an organisation called Generation Zero. But what about externally? What were the facts on the ground as they saw them? In a place like Auckland Central, which has so often been caricatured as, you know, a a really wealthy electorate, when that's just not what the stats show, sure, we have some extreme wealth, but we also have the extremes of poverty, you know, most obviously manifest in um, rough sleepers and homelessness. But, you know, we have the highest proportion of uh, any electorate in the country where people are earning under two hundred, uh, under 20k per annum. We have the, the highest amount of transients with people who are in a uh, dwelling for less than a year. We have one of the higher rates of uh, new migrants. We also have the highest rate of people who don't own their own cars. There are a whole lot of fairly transient young voters who care about the rest of their lives and are, and are interested in, in stuff changing and are not that, that fixed in their ways and energizing and speaking to them putting putting up a candidate who's just sort of unashamedly wanting to represent them to me felt like a really good match and something that was worth asking for that you wouldn't necessarily ask in other electorates Chloe being a particularly special politician who actually does just attract people who want to come and help because she is so intelligent and inspiring and really believes in campaigning that that has, has its own energy that everyone sort of gets into. And so that that real sort of role that she played is is kind of the main fact on the table that that's that was clear right from the start why, you know, everyone wanted to help. So for me it was, yeah, just why don't we give it a shot and why don't we also show that we're actually in it to win it. And so who did they actually need to vote for her? What was their winning coalition? 
and how are they sure they could do it? We knew that from because 20 and 2014, the Greens were able to come second in the party vote, that there is more a sense of a third, a third, a third in this electorate, that sometimes Labour's ahead, sometimes Nationals ahead, and there's a big chunk of potential Green Party people. And so, yeah, we played around with those numbers at, at different times and said, hey, look, you know, if you assume that we do as well as Nelson did in, in, in the Greens campaign where they ran a two-tax last time and you got a, b- a bit of a bump with that and you assume that there's this Jacinda effect where the, the Labour candidate beats the National candidate in, in Tussle or that, that swings up a little bit. And then you assume we can do a, a little bit better and then you assume that what we're hearing on the door is kind of what might be actually playing out in the, in the voting booth. That, that all sort of inched its way up from, I think, 4,000 votes which is what we sort of expected we could get if Chloe ran the same as she did last time in Mogokekia and in Auckland Central. And then we needed we we knew we needed to get to about eleven or twelve thousand. And so you just sort of quietly step your way up from four adding a different reason or a different hope or a or a, <laughs> a, a, a wish that this might align and that's where you start to sort of get your, your coalition and say, you run a really good campaign, you might get the last few thousand in the door and, and, and it can kinda of happen. So that's the interesting thing about Auckland Central is that it's not a monotonous group of people in the suburbs who just vote a certain way. There is a really interesting thing and everyone thinks it's just um, sort of like Ponsonby and maybe K Road and, and Hearn Bay. That's what they imagine the electorate. But of course that sort of group is about 10,000. The city centre is 17,000 and then Waiheke's another six and a half. And then, then of course Great Barrier as well. So what people sort of assume the, the electorate to be in one way or another, it's actually this amazing mix of sort of semi-rural island life with full-on apartment dwellers, with sort of the, the urban liberal elite of New Zealand and Ponsonby. Like, that's actually a really fascinating mix of people that you can draw a, a coalition from. Yeah. So they're going to run, they've assessed their resources, they know why they're campaigning, and they know the voters they need to speak to and convince. So what was their strategy? We both... I think come from or have experience with kind of activism and advocacy backgrounds. So I think we think a lot about theory of change outside of just the electoral system and kind of start from that point and try to work towards like influencing the change makers and your decision point to get into that. And then we just apply that to an election, which is very clear, right? You try and get the numbers and get them to the decision point and get the result that you want. So I think that's kind of why I always think of a campaign is it's a, where can we build our coalition to a point that we're going to get to that election day and get the numbers. I think it's a benefit that the left have more often, but especially in this campaign, was that we would have the most volunteers and we would be able to get the most media attention. That Those are the two things that we would have advantage over the competition, which, you know, we didn't have the most money, we didn't have the most kind of set voters, the most experienced campaigners even, right? But what we had was people power, and we had a candidate who could get attention. Yeah. And it's kind of, you build the strategy around that. And, and that's what's really exciting about elections as opposed to other campaigns, is that the strategy is always sometimes pretty clear. You, you need to win votes and you want to win. Yeah. Probably what's a little bit more interesting to understand with strategy is, is under, really understanding your power. Like, looking at electoral expenses, I think a lot of candidates running in Labour or National do think of their strategy as ad placement, 
and how much can they raise and how much can they um, spend in the right places and that that's literally most of their strategy is like who are the people that I need to talk to and how can I place ads to get them <laughs> whereas on on our side of politics I think we're pretty conscious that the money doesn't just like flow in like a like it might for the bigger parties and so strategy is much more about understanding that our power is in people and and also in this coalition between people who've got lots of time younger people pre-family and also people maybe post-family and a whole lot of people in between that, are, that have got the time to sort of give and so understanding those people and what what they want to do to help out because they usually you know have have got a little bit of an interest and they want to want to help out some way understanding how to really make the most of that is a lot about the strategy as well i think really really unpacking how to how to unleash that power and make the most of people's time to, to spend it wisely in the campaign and and so thinking about people's time in in campaigns i've been involved with where that hasn't gone well where you are you're you're pushing tactics or you're pushing sort of campaign activities that don't match well with what people want to do like say you're pushing just door knocking or or cold calling and uh, that's the only thing you do and it's and it's really not matching where people are at or where the energy's at or the expectations of what it's like to be in a campaign then then in my view you're really wasting that resource so the the opposite of that is to really think carefully about well, well what do people want and like it's so obvious but we really found that during this campaign it's community that people wanted and coming coming along to to pitch in and do do something that really contributed a bit more broadly that was a big part of the strategy it's like trying to trying to make sure people were really comfortable in what they were doing and doing it again and again and again until we went one you know that was, that was it was it wasn't just making people feel pressured to come because it was the right thing to do it wasn't people just showing up because you know there was a moral imperatives to support the campaign people were showing up because they wanted to be there they wanted to be part of this which made it so much easier to get them there to get them to do that a little bit more i think that was really important mm-hmm. <laughs> really made a difference yeah we did think about that a little bit early on and what what do people need to really come and spend a bit of time and and come back again that volunteers returning for action thing so they were very clear about their two key resources loads of volunteers and a high profile candidate to give you a sense of just how strong Chloe's name recognition was versus Labour's Helen White, here's a pretty funny series of vox pops that RNZ did in the lead up to the election. They were basically holding a picture of Chloe and a picture of Helen and asking passers-by if they knew who they were. Chloe, green, yeah. um, left wing. I think she's national. I'm not sure because I don't know anything about them, but I, don't know. I know Chloe's green because so I follow her on social media. So. Okay, I only know one. So this is Chloe Swarbrick. She is running for Auckland Central. Unfortunately, the older lady, uh, I can't place at all. Um, I'm going with Karen, but unsure of uh, the party or what she stands for. The um, younger lady uh, is Chloe Swarbrick, and she's uh, with the Greens. Uh, I have no idea. Never seen her before. This one, I know she's Green Party. Literally no idea who this woman is at all. I couldn't, I was like, she, I thought maybe she is on like breakfast or something. I'm like, nice looking white woman. And yeah, no, literally couldn't type. Maybe someone's mom. <laughs> and this obviously is Chloe Solbrook. She is in the Greens party. And then what do you do with that high profile? How do you make the most of it? Well, what they needed was a clear narrative, a set of stories that Chloe would talk about in the media and at big events, 
and that volunteers would also take to -to face-to-face conversations on the doorstep. The dominant narrative that was coming from the Labour Party was that Chloe would split the left-wing vote and then allow the right-wing National Party candidate to win. The constant argument, particularly in Auckland Central, uh, that Labour was always just so close Uh, That was the case when obviously Jacinda was the candidate up against Nikki Kay and was the same argument that, you know, played out with Helen White and Nikki. But there's always been this assumption that if a Green Party candidate didn't run in Auckland Central, then all those votes would flow through to Labour, uh, the Labour candidate. And, you know, again, I I very much think um, that that's not true and it hasn't been tested either. I think the other thing, Hugh, was what, what was different about this election is that literally every single factor bar the Labour candidate was different. So we had a different National Party candidate, we had a different Green candidate, and the Greens were for the first time running the two-tick campaign. Um, So every single time that the Labour candidate said, well, I was this close last time, it was like, well, you've had five shots at this, (laughs) and you've said the same thing the whole time. And so, you know, actually, we could also progress the subsidiary argument that if anything, you've kind of failed, uh, and let, let someone else have a go. To overcome it then, they used what American linguist George Lakoff calls values-based framing. He wrote a really good book called Don't Think of an Elephant, but Leroy summarised it perfectly. Basically, don't give in to the opposition's framing of a narrative. The more we tried to push back on a vote-splitting narrative, the more people would remember vote-splitting and have that as one of their major concerns of voting. That was never something that we wanted to talk about. You know, we, we planned different ways that we could get around it, different ways that you could explain people out of it. But it's just not something we wanted to be talking about. And the simplest way we found to cut through that was just to say, vote for the person you want to represent you. Focus on the quality of the candidates and steer the conversation back onto something that we could win really clearly, the thing we did want people to be discussing. Mm. And so, yeah, in this campaign, we had talked a lot about the ways that we could kind of dissuade people from thinking about vote splitting and the ways that the math actually was in our favour and all of these things, but we would have never won that argument. We didn't want people thinking about that. We wanted people thinking about who was the best person to fight for Auckland Central, and that is a debate that we were pretty confident we'd win. Yeah, which was a focus on the positive and a focus on the momentum. And yeah, for the for the volunteers, that was a big, big step because lots of them would ask about, oh, what do I say about this vote splitting? And we've been asked about it all the time. And to be able to say something positive and about the momentum that was happening and, and that's not what we are hearing as a, as a team was was sort of useful yeah that's the other thing is that you don't want to send a really eager keen enthusiastic young person out to argue about voting statistics from previous elections and pulling out there were definitely some keen young people that would love there were absolutely some of them who would be very keen on that and god bless those people but no you want people on the door to be talking about what they're passionate about you want that enthusiasm to get over people doing door knocking and do not have to be the experts they do not have to be drilled at statistics they just have to speak from the heart and so all of our messaging our, our lines we tried to focus on that sort of stuff right and chloe was really good at sticking on message In interviews and debates and conversations, the campaign's narrative that she repeated time and time again was vote for the candidate you believe in. Please vote your first, best, strongest, most progressive choice. You have permission now to vote for the candidate that you believe in, to vote for the change that you believe in. Aren't you just going to split the vote again? I am saying that no politician is ever entitled to expect that votes are just going to flow to them. 
My job as a Member of Parliament, as a representative, as a politician, as an activist, as an advocate, is to get out there and tell people why it is so important that we have a strong, core, green heart in the next government. Yeah, I mean, and she's pretty good at that. She's a lot better than I am at media, you know? So I always felt a bit of a dick, but it was just kind of <laughs> reiterating to her to talk about why she cares about things and talk about why you're passionate about it. I think that will come up quite a bit when we're telling the story of this campaign is that it was so much about passion and emotions and caring because that was such a central theme away from having really technical policy discussions. Though that stuff was always there and you know, I think Chloe's a really strong brand of knowing her shit. I have a lot of experience with the vote splitting narrative because I've always been the third party candidate. Uh, it was my experience in 2016 running in the local body election and, you know, being told by people that they, they liked, you know, young, youthful, often framed in that demographic as my sole contributing factor, despite the fact that I thought my policies were pretty sick. The 2016 that Chloe's referring to there was her campaign to be Auckland's mayor before she was an MP and when only her mates knew her name. is a whole nother story in itself, so I won't get into it. But basically, she did really well. She came third and then got recruited to run for the Greens and the following year became an MP. My proposition at that point in time was always, well, kind of what's the point? So it was always just actually back yourself, have the courage of your convictions as a voter to, you know, vote for who you want to represent your community. Um, when it comes to Auckland Central, I mean, we know that we had a really defined kind of number of people that we were working with. And Nico did the numbers on the people who would have to switch. So we knew that the numbers could work. We just knew it was a big uphill battle. So when it came to the questions from people about, you know, the, the splitting the vote and otherwise, I mean, the, the argument that I made is exactly not all too dissimilar from what I put in 2016, which is that you can argue the same thing for the Labour candidate. You know, surely, actually, the proposition here should be, who do you want to represent you locally? And what are the values that are represented in the policies and the platforms that they're standing on? And yeah, I mean, all I had was that, you know, bloody earnestness <laughs> um, and constantly referring to the shit that I believed in. And it really helped when it came down to it that the Labour candidate decided to really go in on me on the progressive issues, you know, on things like wealth tax, on things like increasing baseline benefits to livable levels, because that provided people out there with a stark contrast unto itself, which then enabled me to say very honestly and earnestly and to open a you know another strand of debate which the Labour candidate didn't want to have uh, which is that I was the only progressive candidate actually running uh, so you know when you have that as a frame to work from as well that puts the others on the back foot and they don't get to occupy that space of assumed frontrunner. This pitch that Auckland needs a progressive representative is summed up in the campaign video they released a few weeks before election day. The voices you can hear are volunteers in the campaign. 2020, I think, has been one of change. Cooped up in here, working. I want to see a little bit more of an inclusive and supportive environment. Reducing that wealth gap, which existed far before 
this pandemic. There isn't really anywhere in central Auckland we could afford to live as a young family with kids. So I'd love to see housing become a bit more affordable. The need to have a warm, secure, dry home to build a community and, you know, God forbid, know our neighbours. Politics is something I feel like it's designed so that people don't get engaged with it. Institutions don't have to look the way that they do. Democracy doesn't have to feel broken. COVID-19 has shown us that all of the things that we were told for so long were politically impossible could happen virtually overnight. They were simply a matter of political willpower. Auckland Central deserves somebody who says the same things on the streets as they do in the halls of power. And I've shown that I'm not willing to shy away from things because they're in the too hard basket or they're controversial. I will fight tooth and nail for the things that our community believes in because they're the things that I believe in too. I don't own a house or a car. I'm actively invested in this, as I know that you are too. I love this city, I call it home. I got into politics because of Auckland Central and I want to fight for Auckland Central. I'm Chloe Swalbrick and this election, we're asking you to vote green twice. I guess I've always operated on the basis that we'll just we'll try it out and we'll then get proof of concept thereafter. And in the past parliamentary term, the things that I had kind of taken on that I guess I got associated with, perhaps most notably because it also rubbed up against the election with the referendum, was drug law reform. But on that, you know, the very issue was a proxy for engaging in very granular and um, kind of evidence-based politics and policy, but also doing so with a lens of compassion and empathy and humanity. So I think that people had come to expect that I, as a candidate, know the detail and will fight people tooth and nail, but won't shy away from controversy. And I think that that's quite useful when you talk about the kind of, you know, um, representation that you want for um, some quite hardcore um, local issues. It's not a creation, right? It's if you were a political marketer or someone and you were creating a candidate in the lab i don't think you'd create chloe but yeah, she's yeah. better than that completely and, and when when sometimes you haven't met chloe or you hear about the media chloe and you know that's probably most of what central they've probably seen her on breakfast tv uh talking really articulately about cannabis lots of those sort of funny attack lines around she only sort of ran for mayor and then she's jumped into politics and she's she all just sort of got lucky and it sort of somehow happened and once once you get to know her through a campaign like this and this definitely happened for consensual you see that that's very much just the spin of someone who works very hard and the media picks up on that and and, and sort of picks up on the energy and and can sometimes critique it in different ways but the 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 real honest Chloe that people get to see through a campaign is very genuine and very real and really wants to build community and wants to make it not about her she very rarely has got anything to do with like Chloe the brand that she's trying to push or or discuss or anything like it's it's very much she wants to change New Zealand she wants to improve people's lives she needs help in doing that and that's that's honestly who she is as a politician and that's such a great match with the Green Party. So they had a narrative, vote for the best candidate for Auckland Central. And they had a strategy, focus on building a community atmosphere to keep people coming back by offering a range of tasks that suited all confidence levels. 
and through this they would build a volunteer base which would allow them to door knock thousands of people. The campaign needed a kickoff, something to launch the momentum they expected to see. First one was that first event we did, the first thing we ever did on this campaign, the first time we asked people to show up. Mm for the painting or the letter stuff or whatever yeah, that was. Yeah. It was volunteer in like, event. It was a, the it first was a volunteer mis- event. Miscellaneous volunteer event and you didn't know what you were doing, which breaks one of my roles. But and like um, 50, <laughs> this was in February and like 50 people showed up. Yeah. It was wild. It was so, there were 50 at the start and 70 by the end of the thing. I was right. totally overwhelmed yeah. and I was shocked how much people loved it so much more than uh, sometimes very, very wonky campaign tactics that you you think about a lot but you don't do until you're right into the depths of the campaign and actually starting with some of the softer stuff to to build the community yeah i was probably preparing for sort of 10 people and and that is one of those things at the start where i was like whoa this is something else we should take this kind of real energy that that is just organically happening here and yeah convert it into political power and make it a thing because you know, I've been going for 10 years to political meetings that have five or eight people and then suddenly have 70 wanting to do stuff was amazing. So that was very pivotal because it made us all sit up and say, oh, yeah, we really should do something with it. And then I guess as we went with each sort of new... When we started doing door knocking, that was a real eye-opener to get the so many school strike for climate kids showing up to do door knocking where people who have been in the Green Party their whole life would, were just not interested in door knocking and, and never would. To have really young, enthusiastic people and articulate and intelligent who can discuss, you know, the, the, the wealth tax with people in Hearn Bay on the doorstep and you're 16 and you're still high school. The, the fact that those people came back again and again and recognising in those first few events that that was an amazing you know, a bit of power that, that was happening, that, that really kind of got us excited as well. After that initial series of volunteer events where they could really feel the potential in the campaign, the election period really began. Though they were confident of the electorate's demographics and had good trust between the core team, they were still worried about stuffing it up. As Leroy said, I don't think we were that confident. <laughs> <laughs> they were aware that as an underdog left-wing campaign, one potential mistake or micro-scandal could sink them. For Nico, this meant staying organised, and for Leroy, it meant ensuring no one single event was designed to symbolise the whole campaign. They'd run a variety of events, and they'd run a lot of them. And the best way to do this was through some good old-fashioned planning. You're encouraged and trained in campaigning to do a lot of that, to to do a lot of mapping out how your targets around voter contact and and, and really talking to voters, how how many people you can talk to, how many organisers you can get, how many different volunteers doing different activities at different parts of this uh, the campaign you can sort of map out as early in advance like i remember going to uh, trainings in australia where the the australian greens were talking a lot about campaign planning and and how important that is and i thought oh my gosh how boring is that to like get out a spreadsheet when you're wanting to like <laughs> really think about the issues that matter and 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 getting connections with with real people who want to change politics and you have to start in a spreadsheet and game charting but that i've learned that that is such a big part of just like being a little bit organized so you've got a little bit of a structure to go on so that when you're doing stuff and you get in those moments of 
are we kind of going okay? You've got like a little bit of something to lean on to say, yep, we're going okay to show the rest of the team we're doing well, this is okay. Because that is part of your internal storytelling. So mm. um, that mapping out and that framework is, is important to, to get everyone's buy-in a little bit and to, to make it clear that you've got a, a, a framework of a plan, if not, not all the details. Yeah, and we should mention that we were working under the wider campaign that was being run for the Green Party nationwide. And so under, I, I always remember Nico kind of early on, it must have been March or something, when we sat down with Matt Thomas, the campaign director, and he laid out the numbers we had to hit. And was like, wow. the electorate is this big, and we need to make this many voter contacts. And this many of them have to be door knocks, and this many of them have to be calls. And that was probably one of those moments where we were like, oh, this is going to be our lives. Like, it was so much bigger than anything we expected. But, you know, they had the structure of you spend this time building your base, you spend this time on voter contact, you spend this time mm. on get out the vote. And there was kind of that structure that we were given that we were working within. And like you said, COVID threw all of that out the window, basically. Completely. But it, yeah, it's worth saying they were very good at that. They design. were incredibly so good at planning. Com- compared to other campaigns that have been a part... I mean, like, every campaign is awesome. But compared to other campaigns where sometimes it's a little bit unclear around what what paid staff are doing and what their role is, because it's very easy for them to end up trying to do everything, the paid staff from from Wellington this time were very clear that their job was training and organising a whole lot of us just to do the stuff and Mm. to keep reminding us that... Keeping us on it. I think they did a really good job of that. That's right, in a a really good tone and a really good way. Political scientist Harry Hahn has written a book called How Organisations Develop Activists. It talks about the difference between mobilising and organising. It's absolutely fascinating. Maybe a little bit dry unless you love that kind of thing, but here's the basic point. Mobilising is when people come into a campaign or an organisation and all you do is give them a specific task, like call a voter or paint a banner or write a letter. Organising though is about giving them the chance to coordinate that work, like running a phone calling event or figuring out where those letters need to be posted. It's about transforming volunteers into leaders. And she says that good organizations do a bit of both. But being an organizer and coaching people to take more responsibility is hard and it requires you to be prepared. By June, there are about 15 people with distinct roles in the campaign team, all helping out on top of their full-time work or studies. Someone coordinated all the artists who wanted to help, someone was responsible for managing all the data, and someone who coordinated the scrutineering, which was me. For the core team, it was essential that they had a good grasp of who was doing what. And so having that really clearly mapped out and probably that very geeky chart I sent you with, with different uh, people's names doing different things, is quite, a, is quite a hard thing to do, right? It's quite a hard thing to match up what people want to do, which is often, often some kind of sort of political strategy thing, right? People are often in sort of the, interested in the, the wider picture of what's going on, but you, you do need jobs that are literally just good organised people who are, who are organising things and people who are worried about the office, who are maybe worried about the manakitanga and the, 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 the volunteer care parts of it. And while some of those people who were amazing from last time really just stepped into the same roles they, they had done in the previous campaign, and we have some of them from the structure of the Green Party itself, like the Treasurer, we had a bunch of other people who, who, who came in and, and said, oh, I want to do something. You know, you have coffees with people and you find out what their skill set is and uh, have a bit more of a discussion. And from that, you can usually, in your head, see that map and see what you need to 
to match up. So particularly those get out the vote roles and the local organizers, people who aren't fully into stuff all the time, but need to do a discrete task where they've had a bit of training, those are actually the hardest to get and the hardest to scale, but it's really worth focusing on finding people who will match with those because that's where the magic happens, where you can suddenly um, get get bigger and bigger and feel more and more organized because you've got people who can sub in for other people when inevitably volunteers say, oh, I can't come that time. So yeah, that, that breadth of the campaign. Yeah, and we should say we're incredibly lucky on this campaign that people wanted to show up to help out on this campaign. People wanted to be there for Chloe. People really wanted to be part of this campaign, which made it so much easier than, I know you did a lot of this still, but then trying to beg and call and you know plead with people to show up and to do stuff that we had plenty of people who came along that we could then upskill, that we could then give more responsibilities. And some of my favorite stuff this campaign came from people who just showed up to do one role and kind of we elevated them and gave them kind of, organizing roles and gave them more responsibility and they just completely rose to the occasion i think you did a really got good job this campaign nico of identifying those people and taking them to coffee and being like hey what do you want to do here's what we need doing and kind of filling that role but you're right compared to the the three or four previous elections i've been involved with where i've looked at the same chart and said oh who's gonna do that oh i i guess i should do it for now which is the worst thing to say this time it was was easier than ever because of the chloe energy yeah and we had some amazing people come out of the woodwork and do very specific things like they were saying like Michael, who bought the idea of postcard writing uh, for apartments specifically from from America, she'd done some campaigning over there and she specifically wanted to focus on that as a thing. That was awesome that that turned into a role in a whole sort of work stream. Whether it was getting Tim to do the stand-up comedy night, uh, whether it was, you know, Hazel and Rosemary baking. There was people like Toby who were really interested in the the uni-related sort of messaging and posters and speaking to people in a student accommodation and he really took that as, as a thing and just ran with it and so that th- those weren't roles that were in the structure but they were ones where people had a certain passion and an interest and a niche that we could see was was working with the wider sort of strategy that we we're trying to do and actually being flexible enough to just yeah yeah encourage go keep the energy up and i think that you know if you were observing this from the outside when we were doing stuff and you didn't know who the candidate was, you would not be able to tell. Um, and that's that's the stuff that I think was really awesome. You know, when we went out phone calling and door knocking or, you know, postcard writing, if you didn't know that I was the person who had my big head on the um, billboards, then it just would have been this massive people all working together. Harry Hahn, the political scientist I mentioned earlier, built her theory when studying the 2008 Barack Obama presidential campaign. Since then, the idea of this kind of campaigning where you create the space for people to act autonomously, is now dominant in left-wing politics. It's been theorised in all sorts of ways. There's decentralised organising, distributed organising. The people who ran Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign in the US called it big organising. As Nico goes on to explain later on, this kind of model is a privilege to be able to run because it's dependent on people having free time in the first place. But at the start of the campaign... Once they saw how young many of the volunteers were, and that many of them weren't yet confident doing the more directly voter contacting tasks, they weren't sure whether a full-throttle decentralised campaign would be most appropriate. Yeah, I I think you're right. It's something you think about more over time throughout the campaign. As things get more and more hectic, you definitely need it more. 
and so you just naturally say oh we've got to we've got to split off here and, and do more distributed as as you go but you're right earlier in the campaign i was hesitant to do too much of that and if you look strictly at the campaign theory it'll say yes you should be um distributing uh and and setting up lots of neighborhood captains to completely run their own separate events really early on and there was part of that to me that felt a little bit unsafe where even though you trust those people, you haven't met their volunteers yet. And so it makes it hard to yeah. get a full sense of community and know, sort of get to know people. So we kept together doing most of our events got really quite big and not that distributed and together early on because we were trying to build that community and keep it going. And then in the last four weeks when everyone knows it's just time to, to pitch in and a whole wave of extra people come and help, that feels really the time to split and do a bit more distribution and, and doubling up because you trust everyone by that stage and here's the community and you can just go for it. I think kind of what Nico touched on before is that both of us are the type of people who want to do everything in a campaign or at least are very happy to let things fall on us because I, speaking for myself, mm-hmm. I'm quite controlling and so I want to make sure that like if something's going to go wrong, I want it to be my fault. And so it was just kind of, from the start, we were really on top of everything, and then kind of I let Nico completely run the field stuff. So that kind of happened, and then I'd show up in the office one day, and Toby would be there making signs for something, and I'd be like, oh, "Great, cool," because I also had my eye across what we're doing with the fundraising, which you know other people didn't have their eye on because they didn't need to. We trusted that that fundraising stuff was going really smoothly, or there was the office was being run right or that the advertising which we had quite a lot of involvement in that wasn't something that other people had to you know focus on or be burdened with or bottom line because we had so much stuff happening there but we had so many volunteers that people could just specialize and focus on the stuff that they were doing and i would kind of be pulled in as you know sometimes (laughs) as somebody who could help bolster potentially turnout or whatever but effectively it was our own creative organizers who were doing their own thing it was just everybody and effectively being able to explore their own creative potential and organization of communities and that just felt like human potential realized and and that's what i meant by it you know it's it's fun and it's creative and there's all these different things happening and it means that people who may be terrified of doing what, you know, in New Zealand, I think, can end up being caricatured as an American approach to campaigning with phone calling and door knocking. You can enter and provide your skill set in a different way through other, you know, more creative means or different ways of reaching out to communities. So I just really liked how diversified it was. I liked how decentralized it was. And I liked that people made friends because as I very often kind of complain about I think that the pointy end of you know decades of austerity is the isolation loneliness and manifestation of mental ill health that we've got on you know nigh on pandemic levels to flip that on its head by saying everybody's in this together and we're all going to figure it out and that was really um rewarding because it meant that we knew that we had good people focus on all of the stuff so nothing was getting missed because we were all just being pulled in eight different directions which happens on a campaign sometimes sometimes you don't have enough people there's a lot of a lot of campaigning is project management and that's really hard when you have you know limited people so it's really lucky this campaign because of chloe we had and more than enough people to fill the roles that we needed 
Mm, completely. But it's, it's interesting talking about trust because I that was actually a huge part of it. And we didn't talk about trust at all as like a campaign team. And yet that's exactly what was going on. And, and the fact that we would check in on, on Sundays and that we had almost a constant messenger group going and uh, constant Slack channels and other bits of technology that were keeping in touch with different sort of layers of the campaign, that built a huge amount of trust that things could happen almost autonomously, but because you were in constant contact and you'd check in and, and have another discussion about it, and there was almost a sense of like democracy to it because there were so, ma- so many people involved, and and consensus and actually you know appropriate decision making you 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 felt happy enough to distribute the things for people to just get on and do at the level that they needed to happen as the campaign progressed then more and more events were piling up sometimes they were hosted by people the core team hadn't known a few weeks ago but with whom they'd built a decent level of trust so as a campaign manager how on earth do you keep track of everything that's going on Leroy and Nico laughed at me when I asked if they had a clear strategy document from which they regularly checked off tasks. But nevertheless, they did have regular meetings and these were essential to keeping the campaign on track. The Sunday meetings were built out of our, came out of the 2017 campaign where we all met in person and then this campaign there was a lot, though mostly Zoom calls. But it was just the kind of core group which we came to refer it to, which is the group that uh, went back and forth with the party and was kind of the management of the Auckland Central campaign. And it was basically all of the, like, in quotations, captains. So it was like, you yeah, know... Had a role, yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> kind of field, events, fundraising, advertising. And we'd just go through what was coming up in the week, all the kind of the new business that people had to raise, the decisions that had to be made how people were feeling, any other issues, and kind of, we tried to keep them relative, what, relatively short, under two hours, um, those Zoom calls, and it was just a good way for me, especially, and for Chloe as well, to stay across everything that was happening in the campaign, all the issues that were raised, and there was an inherent consensus there of if something was happening that people weren't happy with, if there was something that needed to be discussed, if there was like an issue had to be raised, it would be raised there. And then everyone was across everything that was happening in those meetings. And I think that wasn't something we put a whole lot of thought in going into. It was just kind of came naturally that we needed to have meetings to run a campaign. And then that kind of, I think, was really, really important in terms of how that campaign was run, was having everyone across mm. the issues. With an open and consensus-based approach to decision-making, there can sometimes be a tension when something just needs to be decided quickly. But when I asked Leroy if he ever had to slam down an iron fist and override everyone, this was his reaction. <laughs> I don't even have that fist. I don't think anyone would have listened if I had. But it was, you know, if, if there were times, which I don't think ever happened, I think we have a huge amount of kind of trust and respect and we we're all very similar cohesive in our ideas but like that's when decisions were made was mm. during those Sunday things there were times when we had to do that for timings or stuff yeah. there was time where it's like oh we just like we cannot drag this out for it. we cannot have another hour's discussion we just have to make a decision now and we'll just go for it yeah because there was one of the things that's always hard to manage is actually the number of ideas mm-hmm. and that's a really exciting part of the campaign and often something that that new people sometimes really struggle with that that they want to be an ideas person sometimes and just like float things that you could or should be doing and working through that 
in a, in a way where it actually turns into actions. <laughs> it's such a boring thing to do, right? And, and often quite a hard thing to do is to say no to things. That happened quite a bit at those meetings. Yeah. I remember we would, we would float a lot of stuff and they would either turn into a box on someone's little list of things that they would do that week or, or they wouldn't and it was a polite, um, we'll kick it to touch for another week kind of thing. Yeah, and especially yeah. in this camp, like a lot of the ideas came from people in those groups. They came from the candidate. They came from people who weren't in those meetings. And they just kind of are carried up to that. And you can kind of tell if after three weeks something hasn't happened, either something needs to change or that idea needs to go right. You kind of know at some point, oh, this isn't working just because it hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. The best ideas will happen because there's enough enthusiasm, there's enough attention given to them. Like mm-hmm. I think a lot of like campaign decision making is keeping an eye on what's working and what's not and iterating toward what's working you kind of know and sometimes things aren't good ideas aren't working not because they're not good ideas because there's the wrong people on them or you haven't explained an idea enough or you haven't like kept enough on that and so those meetings were really helpful for that being like oh we still haven't done that okay maybe i should take that on as your campaign progresses the momentum should reach a series of peaks Moments when your energy is strong and the decision maker you need to convince can feel your power. In election campaigns, they're usually slightly easier to plan for because as Nico said earlier, there's a fairly clear set of tactics that you need to do. Phone calls, door knocking, letter writing, that kind of thing. Another one is candidate debates. And for many inside this campaign, the first debate at Freeman's Bay Primary School was the first big peak. Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Kator. Naimai. Haremai. Good afternoon, hello and welcome everyone. It's inspiring to see many locals and friends here today. Thank you everyone for joining us for our Auckland Central election candidates debate. We'd had door knockers out, door knocking in Freeman's Bay, telling people if they, you know, wanted to make up their mind, come along to the debate. We invited, we didn't have like a big concerted effort to have heaps of people there, but we invited all of our volunteers to show up. It was the Ponsby News organising. They'd done it for 20 years or something. And they said it was the most people they'd ever seen show up for. People were sitting on the floor. It was standing room only at the back. And they kept coming throughout the whole thing. And Chloe just absolutely killed it. I am running to be your candidate for Auckland Central because I live here. Because I have worked here. I have built small businesses here. And because I am embedded in the community here. I think that you should not see voting this election as a chore, but see your vote as powerful because others will tell you that it is not possible to have the representation that you deserve. Please vote your first, best, strongest, most progressive choice. Vote Green. You could tell from the chairs in the crowd, Labour had brought in their people too. Like, this was not, I'm not going to say that we wiped the floor with them, but it, clearly we were not running in third. You know, it was very clearly a, at worst, close race. And Chloe did incredibly. She was on message. She was spoke with emotion. She got the crowd on board. She played well. She was likeable. There was heaps of media there. And it was just this moment of, like, we're in this. This is not... Like, it's game time. It was actually on. That was really, really exciting. Um, yeah, because it, because it feels amazing, right? When you, when you have that energy of having such a persuasive candidate cut through and talk about the issues that you really care about and you've been talking with your mates for ages and then have Chloe articulate them and have a whole different generation of people in, in, in Freeman's Bay 
clap and um, applaud and get in behind it, you really feel like politics is shifting mm. in, in those moments. And so that feeling of energy turns into momentum. You then uh, are quite happy to keep, you know, not watch any more TV during the week <laughs> and keep coming every evening to, to try and do another thing to keep that, that momentum growing because, yeah, you, you see how that, you know, creates really positive feeling for all the volunteers that are involved. Younger people believe and, and care about things. They just don't necessarily believe that the system that they look at looks like them, sounds like them, or can deliver the change that they believe in. The campaign that we are running here in Auckland Central, in this young, diverse seat, is one to represent all Aucklanders across the diversity that is places like this central city, like Aotea, Great Barrier, like Waiheke. And I want to tell you that you cannot be told how to vote. It was a reminder of what we were campaigning for, right? We've done a lot of the campaigning yeah. part of it. You've done a lot of organising door knockings. There was a lot of writing documents and doing chloe was going to events and stuff but this was one of the first times we had the candidates in one place and you saw kind of the candidate shine and you were like right that's what this is for it was like this is paying off there is something here in mid-july something unexpected happened the National Party is scrambling to find a replacement for its Auckland Central seat following Nikki Kay's shock resignation this morning. Kay is bowing out of the race, which has been hard fought over the years, with only 1,500 votes in her win at the last election. Electorate races in the country has just blown wide open. This is our attempt at a cliffhanger, because that's all for part one of episode three. Tune in next Friday to find out what it felt like inside the campaign and how they responded to the news.